Well, we're midway through the book of Jonah, so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to book of Jonah. As you're turning there, I'll ask you this question. What is God going to do in your life next week? What's God going to do in your life next month, next year? The fact is that you have no idea. You can't answer that question, neither can I. None of us in this room knows what has what the future has in store for us. Any number of things could happen to you next week. You might win the lottery. You might lose your job. You might hear tremendous and exciting news. You might encounter tragedy. You have no idea what the Lord might put in your path tonight Tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. None of this is in our hands. And yet many of us are planning, right? We have our schedules, our calendars that we put things on there to try to figure out what our lives are going to be like. We make our plans, we prepare our lives, and yet we have only an illusion of control over those things. We really don't know what's going to happen. Does it comfort you to know that your life is in the hands of God? That he's the one orchestrating all the details of your life? How does it make you feel to know that God is not obligated to do things that you expect him to do? God is totally and absolutely free. He's not a pet that you can tame. He's not domesticated. He doesn't do your bidding. In fact, he will bring into your life, most assuredly, this week or this month or this year, something that you did not anticipate, you could not have expected, and maybe you would have never planned for yourself. God is not obligated to run the universe the way you want him to or expect him to. Your thoughts are not his thoughts. Your ways are not his ways. He is not obligated to do things the way we think he should do things, is he? How many of you in your own life have experienced that, that you had hopes that were going in this direction and God had plans that took you in this direction? How many of you have faced tremendous difficulty where you cried out to God, why, why this? Because you set up your plans and you made your schedule and you put it on the calendar to go this direction and something happened that suddenly you're heading this direction because God surprised you. Friends, God is God. You are not God. <laughs> I am not God. And what that means and what we've seen in the book of Jonah is that God will often surprise you. Because he's not obligated to do anything that we expect, other than the things he has clearly promised to us in his word, he often surprises us. Life takes turns that we don't expect, things happen that we don't anticipate. We are put and pulled in directions we didn't think would ever happen to us. And I want to draw us to a part of Jonah's story that God surprises 
not only Jonah, but those of us who are reading Jonah in many ways. I want to bring us to look at this surprising God. I think it will help us to see God more clearly, to remember that God is bigger than what we thought. We are not God, and no matter how much we might try to organize our lives as if we are God, we are not. And that God is God, and that God can do whatever God wants to do, and he will do according to all his good and redemptive purposes. I want to see this in the book of Jonah. We're in chapter 3. Uh, I want to see three surprises from this text. We're going to see what God is doing, and this is going to allow us to kind of step back and just gaze at God for who he is and what he does. Jonah might have thought that God should act in his ways. This is why Jonah is, is obviously on the run from God. He, he's not really aligned with God. Jonah's got his own agenda. This is why Jonah has run from God. He, he felt that God should conform to what he wanted to do rather than Jonah conforming to God. And yet, in this book, we see again and again, God is reminding Jonah, you're not God. I'm God. Your ways, the things you want to do, the priorities that you have, and the things that you're pursuing are not the things that I'm pursuing. And Jonah has to be surprised again and again to be brought to a place where he's willing to admit God is God. And as we look at these surprises, these three surprises in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 3, I hope the same happens to us. That we are humbled, we recognize God is God and that we are not, and that we learn to worship God for who he is no matter what is happening in our lives. So let's look at these surprises. We're going to start with this. We're going to look at a surprising second chance. Look at chapter 3, and let's look at the first couple verses. You all know that the context by now, I, if you've been around, we're, we're now um, halfway through the book. You know that he's run from God in chapter 1. You know that he was cast into the sea at the end of that chapter, that he sank down until the fish swallowed him in chapter 2, that he got swallowed by that fish, and in that fish he was brought to a point of desperation where he finally cried out to God as his life was fading away, he recognized that he needed to turn his life around, that he wanted to discard his vain idols. Chapter 2, verse 8, he wants to go and live for the Lord. He has vows that he will pay. He says in verse 9, he recognizes salvation belongs to the Lord. And after he repents there in the fish, God speaks to the fish. Chapter 2, verse 10, the fish is vomiting out Jonah on the land and then we come to this next surprising part, chapter 3, verse 1. Look at this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This man has been on the run. He has done nothing to indicate other than this desperate prayer in the belly of the fish that he actually wants to follow the Lord. And yet, he is visited by the word of God again. If the universe were run by sheer fairness. Where's Jonah? He's at the bottom of the sea. If the universe is merely law, and a violation of God's law results in immediate death or disqualification, where's Jonah? He's at the bottom of the sea. He's lost any chances. 
God discards him. God moves on. I can get someone else to do this work. Jonah, I don't need you. He doesn't do this because the universe isn't all about only being fair. If it's only about being fair, Jonah gets what's fair. He is discarded, he is under judgment, and he is lost. But God isn't fair in this sense. He is gloriously unfair, and he comes to Jonah again, revisited a second time. God is not finished with the disobedient prophet. God is not finished with his plans for Nineveh. God is not finished with his purposes, and so he comes a second time. This is surprising. Again, this is surprising. God is not so fed up with Jonah, like maybe some of us dads in the room with our kids. I've had it up to here with you. You've disobeyed too many times. Once, I can tolerate. Twice, okay, but this many times, it's over, it's done. I'm not talking to you, or you've lost your chances. God is not sulking in the corner because he feels so hurt that Jonah won't obey him. Jonah is revisited by God a second time. The word comes to him again. Look at verse 2. Arise. This is almost identical to the same call in chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you, almost exact wording to chapter 1, verse 2, except in chapter 1, he says, for their evil has come up before me. He doesn't say that in chapter 3. Instead, he says, you're going to go to Nineveh with the message that I tell you. Hebrew, it could literally be translated, speak the speech that I say to you. It's an emphasis on the reality that Jonah is going to be the spokesperson for God. He hasn't. In a sense, you might think he's disqualified himself. What has God to do with this wicked and disobedient and running and rebellious prophet. God has nothing to do with this man anymore. God surprises us, comes back again and says, I have a message for you and I want you to speak to the Ninevites exactly what I say. This message will have divine origin and I want you to go on my behalf to speak. This is, this is amazing. Let's just reflect on this for a little bit. God would have been right and fair to disqualify Jonah and say, you're done I'm moving on to someone else. Wouldn't he have? He could have. But he doesn't. I find it amazing that God has chosen to bring his word to his people through human means. On occasion, God will speak directly to a prophet. You read the Bibles and there are occasions where God speaks directly to a person. Moses was this way. Moses received direct revelation as God spoke to him. Some of the prophets this way, the Lord spoke directly to them. And then those people were entrusted with this message to go give the message to others. This is how God has chosen to work in our world. God could replace all preachers in the world and all prophets in the world just with a big sound from heaven. God speaks to his church that way. Rather, he has chosen to do something that might just baffle us. He's chosen to enlist fallen sinful humanity to be his spokespeople to gather his church. He uses people that are really not qualified for the task when you think about the weightiness of the task. To speak 
on behalf of the living God. And yet, this is what God delights to do, to use human vessels to communicate his messages. He doesn't need to do this. He could do this in any other way. He could have signs in the skies that declare his messages. But he has chosen fallen people to be the instruments through which he brings his word to the world. You might ask yourself, well, why does God do this? Why does God keep using Jonah? I mean, if, if he's going to bank on someone like Jonah, is he ever going to accomplish his plans? Jonah's certainly not cut out for the task. Jonah's certainly beyond, this is beyond him. You know, when we think about it, if we're honest, are, are we cut out for the task that God has given us as a church? Go into all nations. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, Jesus said to the apostles before he ascended to heaven, the mission that he gave to his church. Think about the task we have. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, spoke of God making his appeal through us. What an extraordinary responsibility that God has chosen to speak and to appeal through human vessels like us. This is beyond Jonah. It's beyond us. And friends, how often have we failed in obeying the call that God has put on our lives. And we might even ask ourselves, why does he call me? Why is he still pursuing me? Clearly, I'm not good at this. Maybe you've thought about times you've tried to be faithful, a faithful witness to your family members, faithful witness to your neighbors. You've tried to be a, a good, godly church member to care for your family here, and, and you just feel like you're not cut out for the task. You go, I'm not able to do any of this stuff. I don't have the gifts of that person. I'm not as generous as that person. I'm not as outgoing as that person. How often do we fail to be all that God calls us to be in regards to the calling that he has laid on our lives to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ in the world? You ever feel like you've, you've, you've dropped the ball? I think it's amazing that God comes to Jonah a second time when he clearly has indicated that he's not up for the task. And he doesn't want to do it. And yet God comes back to him and invites him back in to the redemptive plan that he has. And how often have you fumbled the ball You've, you've dropped your responsibility. You've let it fall to the wayside. You didn't have that conversation. You were too afraid to approach that person. You've been shirking your responsibilities to love people like you should. And here you are on a Sunday morning, and God wants to call a play and put the ball in your hand and say, all right, I'm calling you back in again. It's like, why me, God? You, you don't need me. Use him. He's better than me. Who's that person? They got more gifts than I do. And yet God just seems to be dead set on using us as frail and broken, cowardly as we are. Why is he dead set on using us? You ever think about that? Why doesn't he discard us? Like Jonah, why doesn't he just let Jonah go? Why does he not let us go? I mean, we could have just been 
discarded and God would accomplish his purposes through some other people? You know the answer to that question is, here it is. God's call to obedience in your life is an expression of his love toward you. God calls you to obedience because he loves you. And it is an expression of his love to invite you into the plans of his redemption. He does not need you. You are not an integral piece for his mission. He can do without any of us. And yet it is his love, it is his mercy, it is his compassion. It is that he wants what's best for you, that he invites you into what he's doing in the world. This is how Paul thought of himself. He, he thought of his call to ministry as the greatest privilege that he could fathom in this life. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he, he writes, to me, he's talking about the stewardship of the gospel that was given to him. He says, to me, though, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. His calling to preach, he sees as an extraordinary gift of grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. He, he writes about his ministry and he describes it this way. Having this ministry, listen, by the mercy of God. He has ministry, he's been called into ministry because God has been merciful to him. If you're a Christian, you've not only been called to salvation, you've been called to service, right? You've read the New Testament. You know that you're called to, to serve Christ and to serve the people of God. Listen, you're not called to service because God needs you or he can't get what he wants to get done done. You're called to service because you need to be serving and God knows that's what's best for you. You're not called to mission because God needs you for the mission. He calls you to mission because you need a mission. God knows that we need to take the responsibilities of the Word of God and we need to hold them on our backs and say, Yes, Lord, I will do what you call me to do. We need to sense the weight of the calling on our lives. We need to feel the weight of the responsibility. There's a sense in which uh, as we... Uh, as parents, if you're a parent, you're training your kids to be responsible. And, and there comes a time when your, your kid is getting old enough to, to take a job, right? And at that point, you're hoping you're, you're teaching them responsibility. You're teaching them responsibility and the little chores around the home, making sure they know um, what it looks like to be a responsible young adult. And, and there's a sense in which you want to prepare them to be responsible before they get a job. Because you got to make sure that they don't totally fail at the job. But you know what? There's another sense in which they never really fully experience responsibility and learn responsibility until they go and get the job. They, they got to do the work. They got to hold the responsibility. They got to be accountable to a boss. They got to be in there doing the work where eyes are watching them to make sure they're doing it well. You see what I'm saying? There's sometimes, yes, we need to be pursuing spiritual growth, but sometimes God reminds us, no, you have been called to something. You have been given a mission. The church has a great commission that you need to feel the weight of responsibility for. And only when we sense the weight of this, we say, this is something God has given me, that we begin to live in obedience to him. God loves Jonah. And so God wants to come back and give him his word. 
You're not off the hook, Jonah. I'm not going to let you flounder, Jonah. I don't want you to act as if it's okay for you to disobey my word, Jonah. I'm going to come back to you again with the word of God a second time because I love you. Because you need to know the way of the call. When I speak as God to you, Jonah, the best thing for you is to obey, to follow through. I recently heard a pastor being really honest and confessing that if he wasn't in the pastorate, if he wasn't in the role of preaching every Sunday and shepherding the church, he said, I wonder how zealous I would be to pray. I wonder how dependent I would be on the Lord. I wonder how fervently I would seek him. And he was, he was pointed at something really crucial, that sometimes the sense of responsibility drives us to desperation, doesn't it? It drives us to the point where we realize, I have been called to this. I don't have the resources for this. God, help. It's not good for us to go through life as Christians as if God has not called us to anything. Let me ask you, church, do you sense a weight of responsibility to obey all that God has called you to obey in the New Testament? Do you sense a burden to do this? Do you sense the word of God coming to you saying, you must obey the living God? Or do you try to live your life as if God's word doesn't apply to you? You try to run from it in various ways. Friends, one of the things we do, and we're going to have one next week, is a membership class. One of the things we're doing in our membership class is emphasizing the responsibility that every member has when they become members, they have a, for, uh, upon themselves a, a certain weight of responsibility, right? You become a member, you're saying, I'm taking responsibility for the other members of this church. I'm going to love them, I'm going to care for them, I'm going to be there for them, and we have a whole list, affirmations of commitment. Whenever we have a member up here uh, being welcomed into fellowship, we read those things because we want to remind the church of the responsibilities we have. You know what? It is healthy for church members to know their responsibilities. It is good for us to be reminded of our calling. God loves Jonah, and so he comes to him again. Do you live with a sense of mission? Do you live your Christian life with a sense of calling and responsibility? Do you have a sense of weightiness on the call that God has put on your life to obey his New Testament commands? C.T. Studd, a missionary who lives up to his name, was a stud. He once said, battle is the soldier's vital breath. Peace turns him into a stooping asthmatic. War makes a man whole and gives him the heart, strength, and vigor of a hero. God comes to Jonah a second time and calls him back into obedience. He doesn't let Jonah flounder. And let, you, let me remind you again that God comes to you again this very morning because he loves you. And I'm here to remind you that as soldiers of Christ, we are in a spiritual war. Isn't that true? You read the New Testament, that metaphor is used again 
And again, there is spiritual warfare, and we who are following Christ take up arms. The, the Spirit has gifted us. We have the full armor of God, and we are to advance in the power of God upon the nations. It's the mission of the church. Do you have a sense of the weight of that call on your life? Or do you sit and wait for other people to do the work? God doesn't need us. God doesn't need you or me. He's not anxious. He's not a recruiter in the skies, wringing his hands, hoping that someone might volunteer to serve. Your invitation to obey him and to be a part of the mission is the greatest privilege of your life. And it is an expression of God's immense love for you that he comes and invites you into this great mission he is doing, this great redemptive plan to reach his people from all nations. So this is a surprising second chance for Jonah. God is not done with him. He invites him back in. And friends, you're not done either. Jonah's sin was egregious. Jonah's sin was rebellious. And God came to him again, and I wonder where you are at. Has your sin been egregious? Have you failed this week? Have you failed all your life leading up to this point? And now you're sitting in a church service, and the preacher's saying, God is now speaking through his word, reminding you that God gave Jonah a second chance and just like he gave Jonah a second chance, he can give you another chance. A chance to respond to the word of God. To re obey repentance and faith. So it is surprising that he came to Jonah because it shows that God is a God of grace and mercy and patience. Let's look at the second surprising thing that God does in this text. God gives Jonah a surprisingly difficult task. So Jonah repents in the belly of the fish in chapter 2. He, he's vomited out. We looked at last week that we'll see in chapter 4 that Jonah still has a lot of growing up to do, doesn't he? He's still very self-righteous, and that will come out in the way that we, his, his interaction with God in chapter 4 reveals. But God is not done with him. He calls Jonah, and Jonah, in this part of the text, what we see is he is resolved to now go and obey He's taken a step forward. He seems to be on the right track. So look at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He rose and goes to Nineveh. This is a terse section. It's not giving us a lot of detail. Uh, we don't know exactly where the fish vomited Jonah up onto the land. But if it's anywhere in Israel, we get an idea of something that's happening in these texts. If Jonah is vomited up in somewhere in the land of Israel, his call to go to Nineveh, is about a 500-mile trek, okay? We don't think about this because we just read through the text and move on. Uh, what's probably happening here is Jonah's being spit up. God comes to him again. The word of the Lord comes, and the call is now, hey, I'm not done with you. I know you didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place, but here, go to Nineveh, and Jonah's sitting here going, whoa, 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 I, I thought I ran from this. I didn't want to be a part of this. And God says, no, no, go to Nineveh. And Jonah starts to think about that walk. This is a 500-mile journey through the wilderness, probably alone. 
you understand how difficult this task is? I mean, this is difficult surely because this is the enemy of Israel. Jonah didn't want to do that for, even if the walk was down the street, he still didn't want to do it because these were his enemies. He didn't want to go into the nation of Assyria. This is the cruel nation. He talks about Nineveh as an exceedingly great city, three days journey breadth. Jonah would have been from uh, some, imagine Farmville, like USA. I mean, he's from this tiny little rural area. And imagine being called to go to something more like New York, New York. I mean, this is something that's so different. It's a capital city of a powerful nation in Assyria. Jonah doesn't want to do any of this. So let's put these things together. If Jonah hikes 16 and a half miles every day for 30 days, he gets there in a month. He's walking toward the city of the people that he thinks might be a threat to him and his people. He doesn't want to do this. He's going into the land of God's enemies. If you were here a few weeks ago, we know that Assyria, the nation, was founded by an anti-God man named Nimrod. His name literally means we will revolt in Hebrew. These are a people who are anti-God, anti-Israel. They don't want anything to do with Israel or Israel's God. The Assyrians, just so you are reminded, uh, these are the people who were first, the, the kind of first effective uh, military terrorists. If we want to understand what Assyria was like, you can just think terrorism. They used it as a military tactic. And there are they were also kings and they had scribes. They were meticulous in keeping all the details of their exploits. So we have all kinds of evidence of what kind of people they were. One of their kings, about a century before Jonah's time, was recorded, actually recorded himself writing this, just to get a feel for what kind of people these, this nation is. He writes this, I, I caused great slaughter. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned, I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before cities. He goes on to describe one of the, the gruesome battles. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. Some I cut off their hands to the wrists. Others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burnt, burnt their young men and women to death. Jonah would have known of these exploits. So Jonah's walking to that capital city. Put yourself in his shoes. He's traveled mile after mile, every step of the way, wondering what's going to happen to me once I get there. You could just imagine he crests the hill and over he begins to see this metropolis. Towers and spires and giant walls. The architecture in that city, in that place, would have been beyond what he was used to. And so as he comes close to the city, he's probably in awe of it. And yet he knows that these are the people who are against him. These are his enemies that would want to kill him. He's probably exhausted, and he has to walk right in. I want to pause for a second and just remind ourselves, obedience is not always easy, is it? Have we begun to think that to obey God should be easy? Do we sometimes think that God is obligated to only give us commands that are easy for us or natural for us? 
Do we think that God has such limited authority over us that he can only give us commands that really fall within our wheelhouse, within things we feel competent to do? Friends, God has never promised that Christianity would be easy. Who do we follow? And what happened to him? We follow the crucified one. We follow the man of sorrows, the scriptures call him. If you're looking for a religion that's easy, don't get near to Christianity. Now, Christianity is their joy. Yes! Are their delights? Absolutely. There's so much beauty in knowing God and being known by him. But is it easy? Jesus called his disciples to take up their crosses. That means prepare to die in following me. It is not easy to follow Christ. Like I said, many have compared it to warfare. Imagine being in the trench. It's freezing cold. You have limited shelter, limited clothing. You're feeling sick. The bullets are whizzing past your head every second. I mean, this is how we walk through life. We are in a spiritual war. We are in beyond our heads, aren't we? We don't have what it takes. And yet sometimes we can even rationalize in our minds. We think that maybe if God calls me to do something that's too hard, he doesn't really, he's not really serious about requiring it of me. We could even rationalize this. We could use, we could use the, our our understanding of God, to try to rationalize our own sin, we could do something like this. You know, God is, is really loving. He's really gentle and, and kind, and, and he loves me so much. Um, he would never ask me to do this. My marriage is way too hard, and God doesn't want me to suffer in a marriage like this. He, he certainly doesn't want me to suffer this way. It's okay for me to pursue an unbiblical divorce. Remaining pure, it's just too hard. It's just too hard for me to remain pure in this way. God wouldn't require me to withhold um, my own desires. He wants me to fully express myself. So I can pursue this. We start rationalizing our sin. We pretend that God's love is an excuse to cover our disobedience. We see that God has clearly made commands in Scripture, but then we deem them too hard, too difficult, and then we go, oh, God doesn't really expect that of me. It's too hard, so I'm going to go do my other thing. Listen, God called Jonah to hike 500 miles alone through the desert, through the elements, to go to an enemy city that would probably like to kill him once they figured out who he was. God can function as God in your life. In other words, he can call you to do whatever he pleases. And he has revealed what he has called you to in his word. And is it always easy? No. No. Do you think that God expresses his love for you only in giving you an easy life? Do you say that God has blessed you when life is going easy and according to your plan and that you don't speak of God's blessing when tragedy strikes or when life is hard or things that are difficult begin to grow up in your life 
Are you feeling less blessed when God leads you through a path of difficulty? And more blessed when he makes your life cozy and comfortable? Friends, God's love is not only expressed in giving you ease and comfort in life. Sometimes God's love is expressed in being firmly communicating this command of God in the New Testament that is extraordinarily difficult. Jonah's path was through extreme difficulty. And some of us this very week or this very month or this next year will find ourselves walking through an extraordinarily difficult path. And God calls us even in that to obedience. In other words, he breaks us down to the point of there is a recognition that we don't have the resources in and of ourselves to do what God has called us to do. Right? He breaks us down to the point where we just can't do it. And so we repent of our self-reliance. We look to God as the only one who can empower us for the ability to obey. Well, Jonah does it. The obedience is hard, but he goes through and look at what's happening. Verse 3, he arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It's a great city. Three days journey in length. Verse 4, and Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this is the speech that God has told Jonah to give. This is five words in Hebrew. Five words. Walks in. The Hebrew indicates that as he walks in, he's probably repeatedly saying this. He's walking in to the enemy nation, the people who are anti-God, anti-Israel. He starts speaking, and he's saying this five, these five words again and again. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I want to just point something out about this, this speech that he's giving. In the Hebrew, that word overthrown, you see that word? Mark that word, overthrown. Interesting word. That term can be used. It's a little bit of an ambiguous term. It can be used to describe a judgment. In fact, it's used to describe the judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, when God judged that, those cities, this word overthrown is used to describe the judgment. It, the root of this word, however, is the idea of turning or overturning something. And so it is also used in various places in the Old Testament to refer to a turnaround or even a transformation. Uh, in 1 Kings 22.34, it's describing a chariot that's going this way and then turns this way. In Jeremiah 13.23, the same word is describing uh, it's the question, can the leopard change its spots? That word change, a turning, a transformation. And so this word overthrown is kind of ambiguous. Is he referring to judgment? Or is it referring to transformation? Really, it could be interpreted either way. I find this fascinating. Within that word, within the semantic range of that word, we find the two options humanity has before God. Turn from sin, from self-reliance, turn a 180 and trust in the living God, 
find salvation or run and be overthrown. This is what the prophet Jonah is saying. There is an overthrow coming. There's an overthrow coming. And if you were to read that in the original Hebrew, you might not have known what was meant, although those listening, the Ninevites, clearly thought it meant judgment. There's a story that John Piper has told about their family when their kids were young visited a house with a big dog. And the dog greeted them with snarls and barking as they went into the house. And as soon as they got in with the owner, the dog was calm. But the dog owner warned the children, don't run from the dog. The dog will chase you if you run. So they had a good time for a little while until one of the boys got scared and began to run. And of course, what happened? The dog began to bark. The dog began to growl and chased him down. He used the illustration to make this point that God is a joy to be near, but a terror those who flee. Turn to God and receive mercy, grace, forgiveness. Flee from God and be overthrown. If you're not a believer this morning, if you haven't repented of your sins to trust in Jesus Christ, you've joined us. First of all, let me say, I am so happy you're here. You're welcome back at any point. We gladly receive you to come any Sunday morning you desire. Grab a donut, take some coffee, you're welcome here. And let me tell you something that some people, maybe even some Christians, might not want to tell you. God has made clear in his word, judgment is coming. The word of God is crystal clear that God is holy, and there is a coming day that he will judge the hearts of every human being who has ever lived. He has made it very clear that in Scripture, no matter how we assess ourselves, that we are fallen sinners, and the righteous act of God against a fallen sinner is to condemn them to hell for their sins. Let's not mince words. This is what the Bible teaches, that hell is real and that the holy God of the universe is right and good to condemn criminals to hell for their sin. But this holy God is a God of immense grace and love that he has entered into his creation in the person of Jesus Christ that Jesus has lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. And he died on the cross for the sins of everyone who comes to him. That he rose from the dead and is alive right now as the risen Lord of the universe. And he extends to you free forgiveness of sins. You pay nothing. You earn nothing. You come with empty hands and you accept the gift of God freely. There is a turning to him that must take place. Just as Jonah's message said, there is an overthrow of your life in judgment if you don't turn. But there's also a possibility that you turn yourself. That you are the one that turns from self-reliance, turns from your own ways, 
turns from your wickedness and cast yourself at the feet of the God who saves, at the feet of Jesus himself who is a Savior. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus Christ this morning. To turn. The gates of paradise are wide open and you by faith can walk right in and be on a perfect standing with God because the righteousness of Christ becomes your righteousness. And if you walk out of this room and say, nah, not going to do it. Let me ask you. Do you want to risk your eternal soul ignoring this message? God is kind to you to allow you again to hear the message of invitation that you can come to Him through Christ today and receive this salvation that is glorious. Don't ignore the message. At the very least, maybe pick up a Bible. We have them laying on the ground around here, somewhere under your chairs. Grab one, keep it. If you don't have one, it's yours. Go read it and see if these things about Jesus are true. This is what Jonah does. He comes and he speaks of a coming overthrow or turning. Now this is what the third surprising thing is. God uses this tiny stone of a sermon to slay the unbelief of these Ninevites. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. What an amazing act of God. The people who were enemies, who were wicked, who were cruel, they weren't seeking God. They weren't chasing Him down trying to figure out who He is. This prophet, disobedient, rebellious prophet, ends up finally, maybe begrudgingly, walking into the city. He gives this five-word sermon, and the entire city believes it. The indication in these words is they believe it is divine. It's coming from God. They recognize that this is a message of divine origin. Even their response, it says the people of Nineveh believed what? They believed God. What's interesting is Jonah said nothing about God in this text. And yet they believe God. So they recognize that the message is coming from God himself. They believe it. But not only believe, it says they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth. This is a coarse cloth made from goat's hair. It's meaning to symbolize a rejection of earth's comforts. They, they defy that comforts of the world. They put on this sackcloth and they begin to mourn their own sin. An amazing picture of repentance. Citywide repentance. The greatest of them to the least of them repenting. Isn't this amazing? You can almost imagine the, the scenario. Jonah walks in. He's, he's preaching this five-word sermon, walking through the city. And you could almost envision the person hears the message. They're wondering about what this, this prophet's saying. They whisper to their friends. They say, what? Is he talking about judgment coming? Oh, oh no. It might be judgment coming. And the, the people start to spread this message. And suddenly it's spreading like wildfire. And the whole city is... Uh, buzzing with this news of coming judgment and yet every time the message spreads from one person to the next it's not met with 
doubt. It's not met with, I don't believe that. That's not possible. It's met with an actual belief. No, we're, we're going to be judged for our, our sin. Our, our wickedness has been found out by, by God. And all of them, upon hearing this short message, begin to humble themselves in repentance and belief in the true God. There's some, some natural reasons why this might have happened. I'm totally okay with believing that God just, boom, changed their hearts and they all get saved. But I also believe that God often uses situations in our lives to bring us to the point of repentance, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish before he repented. I think Jonah, or God, was preparing the Ninevites. If you look at the history around the city of Nineveh, in the same time that Jonah would have come, there were lots of famines, during that time that the people were being threatened by, there were even some revolts from within the community that needed to be dealt with. There's also records of a major earthquake that happened. In Assyrian religion, they believed that an earthquake was a sign of, it was an omen, it was a sign of divine wrath. There's also the records, uh, the astronomical records indicate that on June 15th, 763 BC, there was a total solar eclipse there. It was as if God was preparing Nineveh for something. It's likely that at this point in history, Nineveh is afraid. They're worried. They're beginning to wonder, well, are the things that we're doing acceptable to, to the gods? They were not worshiping a single true God at this point. It's also likely, as some scholars have noted, this has kind of fascinated me, that Jonah, after spending three days in the belly of a fish, would have been partially digested by the gastric acids of the fish. And it's likely that he came out, though he was probably a brown-skinned man with bleached white skin, and that there's the hair on his head and the eyebrows all over his body was lost. And this man, maybe hungry, traveling all these miles, walks into Nineveh looking ghastly. And he walks and he starts preaching this message in Nineveh who has been experiencing these weird things, a darkness in the sky, a shaking of the earth, famine in the land. It might be, and this is a little bit conjecture, we're not drawing it out of the text, we're drawing this from history, but it might be that God all along the way was preparing Nineveh for this message. And suddenly, Jonah shows up on the scene, he preaches this simple sermon, and God had them right where he wanted them, and they all repent. They all repent. Spreads like wildfire. Friends, do you doubt the power of God to save? Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. You mean to tell me the one in charge, the one who had created and sustained this culture of violence, the one who endorsed the wickedness, the one who was the strategic mastermind behind the acts of terror, you mean to say that he's repenting of his sin before a holy God? You mean to tell me the chief of sinners? The chief of the sinners of Nineveh is the one that's repenting? God's going to forgive him? Even the words convey an amazing, even poetic picture of repentance. He rises from his throne. He changes his clothing. He sits back down. The 
this time not on a throne, but on ashes, but in the dust. In solidarity with the rest of the repenting city, he no longer is a king, he's one of them. And yet he uses his platform to start spreading the message even more. Look at verse 7, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the kings and nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. I mean, he's even clothing the animals in sackcloth. This was actually a practice in those ancient cultures when the repentance was running deep. They would demonstrate their sorrow, their extreme sorrow, by even taking the animals that they owned and clothing them in sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Those words remind us of what the sailors called Jonah to do in chapter 1. Let, us, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. <laughs> what amazing grace. The chief of sinners in Nineveh becomes its greatest missionary. This king's a better missionary than Jonah. He just heard the message, and he's orchestrating, his, using his power to orchestrate a way so all the people in his power can hear the message of repentance. You heard this before? Chief of sinner named Saul, opposed to the grace of God, the church of God, on his way to persecute Christians, and Jesus stops him in his tracks, saves him, turns him around, and becomes the apostle. God uses to build the church. Friends, this stuff can happen. This stuff can happen and it still happens today. And if you're a non-Christian and you go, I don't know if that could happen to me. Maybe you could say, I'm too much a sinner. I've failed too many times. I've gotten too entrenched in my sin. I've gone too far. I'm a chief of sinners. I can't give up that now. I've made my decision. I've chosen my path. I've gone that direction. I have failed God. I don't want to be with God anymore. Well, I'm sure that the king of Nineveh was that kind of man. I'm sure that Saul was that kind of man. And God stopped him in his tracks and demonstrated this mercy and changed his heart. And the chief of sinners repents and receives grace. The king of Nineveh is forgiven. The king of Nineveh is saved. Let this be hope to all sinners in this room. God loves to save sinners. He delights in the salvation of the undeserving. God's grace toward you is not related at all to your ability to deserve it because no one in this room deserves it at all. Grace is free. Grace is unearned. Grace is extended without any merit. This is why we might all marvel at the king of Nineveh being repentant. And yet we should also at the same time marvel that any of us are repentant. Because we needed as just much grace as he did. If you're not a Christian and you felt like you've maybe lived your life one way, you've gone down one path and you've gone too far, I want to again invite you to return to the grace of God, to turn from your sin and to trust Him. It can happen to the worst of the worst. It can happen to the chief of sinners. 
it has happened and is happening to sinners who don't deserve it, who despair of themselves and look to God. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they had did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. You repent, and God relents. You turn to him. He no longer is a terror to you. You run from him. You have much to be afraid of. The city, the king, they're not overthrown by judgment, but they are overthrown by mercy. If you're a Christian in this room, I, I want you to be amazed at the power of God to save. Who are you doubting that God has the power to save? Who have you given up praying for? Who do you say it's so unlikely that they ever come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? I want you for a moment just to imagine them in repentance and faith, to picture them and what it would look like for them to be turning from their sin and trusting in the living God. Because I think part of what we are to learn from this text is how surprising the grace of God is, how powerful it is to save the undeserving. God makes no promises that he will radically provide revival in a city or in the lives of the people we want to come know the Lord. We have no promise that he will do things the way we hope he does them. But the text does say that he is a God who can save the worst of the worst. And so I say, why not ask? Why not ask him? for such salvation to be granted of the people we think would never get saved, the most unlikely of people to experience salvation? Why not ask for this kind of revival in our church community, in our city, in our nation? Why not ask for this? Has God changed since this happened? Does he no longer do things like this anymore? We just give up and just assume that God will never do anything like this ever. The people who are lost in their sin are just going to stay lost in their sin. Or can we look at this and go, no, this is the nature of our God. He saves the worst of sinners. He still can. And I know some of those people. And I am not going to give up praying for them because I think that God can still surprise us by bringing them to repentance. Can we pray in that way? See, see, revival, guys, revival is not something you can plan. You can't put it on a schedule. You can't put it on your calendar. If a church is inviting you to a revival next weekend, you can go. Just know you're not going to a revival. A revival is an act of God. And clearly it is not contingent upon the qualifications of the preacher or the quality of the sermon even. It was, a, it was Jonah, the disobedient prophet, preaching a five-word sermon, and God sparked a revival through that. It is God who brings revival. We can't put it on the calendar and conform it to our schedule. God does these things. What we can do is ask and plead. If you're a part of our church, let me ask you, plead with you. Are you, will you be the people who pray this way, who hope this way, who don't give up in this way. 
that we never think that someone is too far gone, we keep praying and praying and praying and we understand that God is under no obligation to do what I think He should do. And yet, He might surprise us by saving the king of Nineveh, by granting revival to a city. Will you pray fervently for the lost? Will you recognize the absolute sovereignty of God, His total freedom to accomplish His will, and plead with Him that His name would be hallowed in our city? I'm praying that we would have a church that doesn't settle but longs for God's name to be recognized as the great name that it is. That there's a Nineveh out there, there's a king of Nineveh out there that could perhaps be our greatest evangelist. And that we would be willing to go with the message to be his ambassadors, to speak to our neighbors, our family, our friends with the good news of the gospel, to pray and say, God, I know you are under no obligation to do anything like this revival, but would you please, for your great name, can we be like John Knox who prayed for Scotland, give me Scotland or I die. Such was his passion to pray for his nation. God is sovereign and free. He's under no constraints. He comes again to a rebellious prophet who does not deserve him. He invites him into this plan and calls him into obedience. He puts him on an extraordinarily difficult path toward obedience. Friends, this is our story too. We have been disobedient, but God has been good. He invites us back to obey Him, to follow His Word. And sometimes following His Word means we walk in extreme difficulty, but we walk in obedience. And as we do, we have to ask the question, Oh Lord, I know I'm weak. I know I have nothing, but how might You use me? Lord, would You use me like You used Jonah? Would you use me to do things that are utterly outside of my ability so that it's clear that I don't get the credit, but all glory goes to you? Can we live that way? For the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at your amazing power to save. Thank you for saving the king of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, for drawing them to repentance. Father, thank you so much that you are still that saving God and that you can save sinners this morning. Thank you that through Christ the gates of paradise have swung wide open, that anyone can enter in through the door of faith through Christ. Lord, we ask that you would magnify your great glory, your great salvation, your great mercy and grace by saving the most unlikely of people and by using the most unlikely of people so that you would receive all the glory. In Jesus' name.